1: It's Wednesday, August 31st, the last day of summer, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Lenehan. With me today are Jack Horgan-Jones and Cormac McQuinn from our political staff. Hello to you both. Hello, Hugh. Good morning, Hugh. Jack, I'm going to go to you first. There's There's an awful lot of stuff in the Irish Times this week, including today, about... This train that's coming down the tracks at us, uh, cost of living has already been a problem this year, but we're facing extraordinary rises in energy costs and in people's domestic bills. And uh, companies are facing huge overheads in the winter, which is bearing down on us now. And the question is, what's going to be done about it?
2: Um, yes, and, and I think we are being softened up to an extent for uh, the unavoidable. Um, we have entered a world from kind of February onwards where a lot of the uh, the assumptions that we made about the security of the energy system and uh, how we can rely on it have been undermined uh, in the first instance by the, the war in Ukraine, but also some longer standing and pre-existing weaknesses in the design uh, of our own electricity market and our capacity to bring new generation onto the system in a timely way. And all these things have kind of come together in a perfect storm. And um, in the first instance, we were quite worried in March and April of this year, about interruptions to uh, the supply of, of fuels, uh, so whether we could rely on gas coming across the interconnector or whether we could rely on shipments of oil-based uh, products coming in through through the ports. And I was writing last week about this new Nefit for Energy that was set up to examine uh, these scenarios and disaster plan for what happened if, you know, between 50 and 100% of the diesel that comes into the country didn't turn up and obviously the consequences of that would be Quite severe, uh, you know, putting pressure on on social cohesion and the delivery of essential services, and and basically the kind of prognostications of doom that we became so used to uh, during COVID. Um, some of which came, some of which actually came to pass during the pandemic. Um, as the the year progressed, there there was a growing sense that you know we could rely on on the delivery of fuel and on on the pipelines of of um, bringing the raw fuel into the into the country, but uh, doing so at an extremely inflated price. And, and and that is the risk that hasn't receded other than in the sense that, you know, you need less fuel for, for home heating and so on during the summer. Um, but all the indications and uh, all the fears in government and the growing concern in government is that, you know, not only with the elevated prices that we've become used to uh, in 2022 persist into the winter, they're likely to get worse. So that has a very clear political logic behind what the government has to do, which is effectively backstop or support um, consumers, uh, citizens and, and businesses to some extent to help them navigate this. Uh, and there are a range of, of options available, I suppose, on the table for, for how you might do that. Um, some of which are, are quite complicated. And uh, Naomi O'Reilly was uh, reporting from uh, Brussels earlier on this week on an intervention by Ursula von der Leyen, who spoke about an er- emergency intervention uh, at a European level, redesigning the entire kind of European electricity system, which takes its kind of reference price for uh, wholesale electricity from the, the the gas price and trying to kind of decouple that link because it's designed for uh, a a bygone era when gas was seen as a a good kind of base uh, reference price uh, versus renewables and now obviously we're living in, in in an era where gas is is massively expensive and, and Europe is exposed to uh, high prices and and a low reliability from Russian gas and um, so that's a kind of structural reform that that might be done. Uh, and then there's several countries have have looked at things like capping the price of of gas domestically uh, capping the energy prices domestically rather or uh, introducing windfall taxes on on energy companies all of which are being looked at in the round here none of which are particularly simple uh, and none of which I think can be pulled together in a kind of meaningful sense probably in advance of of the budget Um, you know restructuring the electricity market or designing an effective uh, energy uh, cap. I, I don't think our, our runners. What is being eyed and and looked at with with uh, with some increasing seriousness, although there is quite a lot of opposition in the Department of Finance is the idea of a windfall tax um, targeted at energy companies, which are, are making quite a lot of money. Now, that in and of itself is is problematic because if you look at the energy sector, and our colleague Barry O'Halloran has been doing some excellent reporting on this, if you look at the energy sector, it's not the, necessarily the energy sector or the energy generators or energy retailers writ large who are doing well. It's by and large the, the wind energy companies or the, the wind energy elements within those companies who are doing very well because the cost of their fuel obviously hasn't gone up, but they're able to charge a, a, a price which is set by reference to gas as opposed to to wind. So there, there's large profits being made there, but there are legal concerns as I understand it in the Department of Finance with, you know, if you were to design a very closely targeted tax on that. Uh, would you leave yourself op- uh, open to uh, judicial review, a high court case? And then, you know, there's just the technical aspects of, of how you build something like that um, at short notice. You know, one kind of blunt way, I was talking to Dr. Murin Lynch of the ESRI yesterday, one blunt way of doing this potentially would be to kind of take, um, you know, the, the corporate tax rate, which is levied on profits, and say, right, if you're an energy company, you know, you pay uh, an extra uh, corporate tax kind of bolt on on top of uh the twelve and a half percent, um, which is constructed by reference to you know the difference between your your profits in twenty twenty two and your historic average profits. Again, there's resistance in the Department of Finance to that because obviously. You know, if you're one of the custodians of Irish industrial policy, one thing you don't do is mess around with corporate tax uh, without a lot of notice um, and, and and a lot of signaling. Uh, so there's a fear that that would undermine investment also in, in renewables. So uh, long story short, um, you've got the long version. <laughs> the, 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 the short version is uh, there's no easy options that I can see other than perhaps designing, uh, you know, a fairly limited... Uh, windfall tax and and hoping for the best because it's politically expedient to target companies that are making big money off this and then lorrying more money into the pre-existing structures that we made earlier on this year uh, to help support and backstop the cost of living. So that would be universal energy uh, rebates, uh, extending Excise and VAT cuts on fuels, and also uh, both targeted and permanent increases to uh, broad across the board welfare payments and targeted welfare payments like the living loan allowance and and, and the fuel supplement and so on. So I think that's where we'll end up. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, debates still to be had about that. But what is clear as well is that no matter what they do, they will not be able to totally offset the impact of those high prices. Come this winter, there will be a lot of um, households pushed into energy poverty, as we reported last week. Up to seventy percent of households could. Find themselves in energy poverty if you get the same kind of um, increases in energy costs that you saw over uh, over the recent times. So it's it's a very real part, and you're looking at large portions of the of the population being pushed on this and having a reckonable uh, difference in their standard of living arising from it. So therefore, it's a big political problem.
1: And I, I want to look at the kind of the consumer end of it, um, which is the sharp end of it politically, probably in the immediate future in, in a moment. But just to come back to, I mean, you said at the outset of that very clear exposition. Of the issues that it wasn't simple. It certainly is not simple. It's fiendishly complicated as reading your um, your articles and Barry Halloran's articles as well about this over the last couple of days and trying to get my head around what is a very oddly structured market, oddly structured for good reasons, you know, to, in- to incentivize renewable energy over the last decade or so to try and, I suppose, flatten out the costs in certain areas to try and make the market predictable. But the upshot of all that now is um, is that tinkering with it is extremely difficult. And then you you also mentioned Ursula von der Leyen. I mean, is it better from the government's point of view just to wait for Europe to get involved in this rather than to try
2: and uh, try and interfere at the local level? Yeah, I think quite possibly because you know we have a market at the moment that functions uh, with regard to European law and, and what the. European uh, wider energy system or what the European Union wants its energy constituent energy systems to look like. And also, again, as Myron Lynch, the SRI researcher, was making the point to me yesterday, uh, you know, the market is is reacting in a, uh, in, air, in air quotes, rational way to what it's experiencing. You know, an input cost or a marginal input cost is 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 uh, rapidly escalating in price, and therefore you would expect the end user to be charged um, a a commensurate increase in price. So it's an indication that the market is, is functioning as you'd expected, it's just that the market was designed for a different time. Uh, it was designed to do something else. It was designed primarily, as you say, I think the last redesign was in 2014, 2015. And, um, you know, that was about, as you say, bringing renewables onto the system in a meaningful way. Um, so do we kind of strike out by ourselves and, and and try and figure out a way to redesign our domestic electricity market? Uh, I think that that would probably not be wise. And, and given the fact that we have this meeting of EU energy ministers um next week you know it, it is more in keeping with the Irish approach to big changes on the European scene to kind of keep the head down and see what way the wind is blowing pardon the pun and see where we end up and uh try and you know adapt our situation uh or adapt our, our systems to that as opposed to kind of trying to get out in front of it so I, I suspect that's where we'll end up but you know that's a process that probably won't move that quickly. I mean, notwithstanding the uh, big political momentum in Europe and particularly in Germany around reorganizing systems of power supply and distribution away from uh, Russian gas um, and towards, uh, you know, LNG or renewables in the long in the long term. Um, it's it, there. I think there's probably a ceiling on how quickly all that can happen, as you say. Power markets are just complicated, I can tell you that from, from the experience of the last kind of week or 10 days of looking at them and various migraines or, you know, uh, eyes glazing over uh, at and, and moments that I've had trying to understand all this stuff. Because it's, it's complicated, it's complicated for a reason um, and changing it quickly and, and effectively, uh, you know, you may not be able to do both those things. And just finally on that then, political window
1: dressing, I think, is what uh, a windfall tax has been described at. And that seems to be the feeling within government as well, that they might have to do it, but it'll be very cosmetic ultimately.
2: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that there was a splash in the Sunday Independent at uh, the weekend. I think Jody Corkin had a story saying that it would it would raise about 100 million and it would be uh, a token. Uh, and I think that will be a token really when you're looking at the kind of quantums of, of money that are sloshing around the energy sector at the moment. And the profits that are ultimately going to be recorded for the full year in 2022, particularly by uh, non gas based um, generators. Uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think that 100 million obviously is not to be sneezed at, but like, it's also not going to m- meaningfully move the dial. I mean, it might help uh, make good a political promise on one of the important things that they've undertaken to do in the budget. So, for example, one of the figures, and I don't think it's nailed down yet, but one of the figures that was previously circulating around the cost of doing something meaningful for all childcare was about 100 million. So if you're able to argue, you know, we're offsetting a, a significant um, cost of living measure with, with this income, you might be able to kind of close the political circle on it. But like, you know, the, this idea that we're going to be able to construct an effective uh, cash raid on these companies um, to to offset the impact of you know these Titanic price increases that are coming down the tracks is unfortunately fairly fanciful.
3: I think just to come into that on that as well. I mean, politically, it's, it's quite simple in a way. I mean, there's, there's obviously. Um, Jack has done a, a good job of explaining the difficulties of systemic change in the power sector but but a windfall tax it's a, it's a simple idea it's a popular idea and um, those calling for it, pretty much all of the opposition have been calling for it they're saying even in Britain with the Tories in power they've done it there but that's of course forgetting kind of fundamental differences between the two jurisdictions in that they, they have major fossil fuel producers in Britain that we don't have here many of our power companies and energy companies are semi-states so you'd be kind of you know you'd be Taking, you know, taking with one hand and giving back with another, or, or vice versa, you know, there's there's concerns that they they won't invest in renewable power and things like that if. If uh, if a windfall tax is, is brought in here, and there's also concerns that that it will it will mean higher prices for consumers. But politically, as I say, it's quite simple. It's quite popular, and popular doesn't always equal good. But people are suffering from from rising uh, utility costs. You know, even just in the last week, SS Electricity has 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 brought in significant price increases, and uh, you know it, that sort of measure uh, is is kind of perceived as maybe hitting hitting back against against these companies. So, you know. You can see why the opposition are calling for, you can see why even the Green Party and government are pushing for it, and it would be surprising if, if there isn't some sort of nod towards the the windfall tax idea in, in the upcoming budget as a result.
2: Yeah, because as Cormac says, like you know the fact that the Greens have now quite clearly built a bit of a political house around it, I think, makes it more likely for inclusion. One thing to watch uh, is also the, the potential of a change in dividend policy, so... Uh, Corm points out that you know some of our uh, some of the large uh, energy companies on the island are, are state owned, um, and I think the preference of the Department of Finance will be to uh, perhaps change the uh, the dividend policy to increase the amount that they have to pay out to the state. Um, whether that will totally offset the, uh, the the political momentum behind a windfall tax, I'm not sure, but you know you might get some kind of hybrid option. Now, Cormac, the thing about rising energy costs is they don't just affect
1: people's domestic bills; they feed into the overall number for inflation, both in terms of increasing individuals' outgoings, but also you know commercial operations, retail, everything. Their costs go up and they seek, if possible, to pass those costs on to the consumer. And all of that feeds into an inflation rate which we're at already, which we haven't seen in, in decades. And a lot of people predict it could go a bit higher. And that then, of course, Feeds into demands for um, for wage increases to uh, to parallel that, and the government is in the midst of those negotiations. You're, you've been writing about that today.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, I got a, a crash course in public pay policy this week as. Uh, the the representatives of of public sector unions met with uh, officials from the Department of Public Expenditure uh, beginning of Monday at lunchtime and and working through the night until until just before seven am on Tuesday uh, when the the uh, potential agreement was was reached. Uh, I'd be lying now if I said I'd I had spent. All night there, I didn't. I went home at a reasonable hour. But you know, it, it very little coming out. Very little coming out of those talks during the day. I mean, people, the reporters there were were trying to read things into union officials moving their cars in the evenings and and deeper officials going out for coffees to fuel the the difficult negotiations, as as the unions uh, described them afterwards. It of course suits all sides to to portray the talks, uh, which lasted the guts of 19 hours, as difficult because the unions could go back to their members and say, we were banging the table to to get to get you the best possible deal we could get and they have indeed uh, argued that it is the best possible deal that can be got through negotiations and the government can can portray it as being careful with the the public purse and and uh, you know being being generous in in helping uh, public sector workers with with trying to cope with the cost of living while while trying to to leave room for for other things in the budget but what has resulted from those talks is a proposed agreement that would see uh, 6.5% in pay increases up to the end of 2023. Now that that breaks down as as three percent in uh, backdated uh, pay increases for civil servants and and Gardaí and nurses going back to February. That that is it is envisaged would be paid in a lump sum of about nine months' worth of that increase, perhaps in November. So it would be a very uh, nice uh, package for for uh, coming up to Christmas. Uh, it'd be a popular thing, you know. It would amount to hundreds of euros the pre pre tax, you know it it could be about 1100 euro for somebody who's on on 50000 euro it would be about 2250 for somebody who's on 100000 euro but you know it's still it it every little helps coming up to to christmas i suppose uh, and it's it's one of the attractive aspects of the deal but then coming next year is a second pay increase of 2% from the beginning of march and then uh, the final one would be in october of 2023 1.5% uh, or if you're a lower-paid civil servant, you get a, a, a minimum a 750 euro payment. If the if the 1.5% didn't quite reach that 750 threshold, so you know quite significant pay increases over the over the next eighteen months or so. And um, the government is very much hoping that it will be enough to uh, to buy them uh, industrial peace this this winter. So they don't have rolling strikes to, to add to the, to the woes that are inevitably coming down the line with the, the soaring prices of energy and, and other matters.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule
3: Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Now, covering industrial relations negotiations, I know, is a very particular kind of a journalistic skill. It involves a, um, a quite, a let's say, fair approach to sleep patterns, I think, when these things are at, their, uh, at their, their sharpest end. And also a way of kind of reading the tea leaves, because people come out and they say things, and when they say those things, they may mean other things. And I suppose it'll all come out in the wash as to where everybody really is at the end. Do the unions seem open to this proposal? The reason I ask is because... Inflation now stands at 9.5%, and the numbers that you just offered there, you could crunch them together on top of the existing agreement and these new offers to say they they come to 9.5%, but that's over a calendar period of 18 months or 24 months, whereas in fact, prices have risen by 9.5% in the last 12 months. Are unions going to have to suck up the fact that there's actually going to be a decline in the standard of living of their of their members over the next year, and will their members accept that if that's the case?
3: Well, it's not all over yet, because, you know, a part of this thing is the unions are going to take five weeks to consider whether or not to ratify this proposed deal, and um, a crucial event within that five weeks is budget 2023 uh, coming towards the end of that process on September 27th and that's where, where the the other part of the, the deal, the kind of the unwritten part of the deal comes in whereby the government has for months now been promising various cost of living measures that would, some, would, some of which will kick in in 2022, some of which will kick in in 2023 and um, the unions haven't been shy about saying in the last 24 hours that their balloting on whether or not to accept this new public pay deal will take place at precisely the same time as the budget is, is happening at the end of September. Then there will be 10 days in which they will make their final decision uh, on whether or not to accept the deal. So that, that's the kind of the threat hanging over the government at the moment. You know, I, you know, the unions are saying, what you're promising better be good enough to get this deal over the line because as of now, the, the pay increase alone, Obviously, it doesn't match the rate of inflation, um, and uh, that's the you know that it's 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 been long said within government as well that that the landing zone four deal was. Pay increases, coupled with tar- mostly tar- targeted, specifically or weighted towards lower-paid income tax cuts for for middle-income earners, and something called a social wage, which the unions define as as kind of uh, other measures, uh, other measures resulting from government social policy that that contribute to uh, help with the, the cost of living. So, the budget is the the key the key date in terms of whether we on in terms of whether we can decide if the unions will actually uh, ratify this deal or not. Now, I will say that the, the union negotiators made a lot of positive noises after they came out of talks in terms of being the best deal deal they could get. Uh, threatened industrial action ballots have been suspended. Um, so, you know, there, I, I think there's, there seems to be an acceptance in the trade union movement, certainly among the leadership, that this is, this is where it's at, you know. It, and perhaps as well an, an acceptance that, you know whatever measures the government take aren't quite to, going to quite meet the the cost of inflation i mean it stood at 9.6% in july uh, we we'd we'd report this week from uh, on uh, that Davy Stockbrokers is suggesting could go as high as 13% in the coming months. You know, there, 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 there comes a point where public sector workers have to share some of the pain that, that people elsewhere in the economy are as well, that can't rely on the same level of job security, uh, aren't getting a, a guaranteed pay deal of the order of 6.5%. You know, having said that, there will, of course, be hardliners in the unions that will, that will uh, will be arguing this doesn't go go far enough. But if I was to, to bet on it now, I, I suspect it will get over the line with the majority of unions.
1: Yeah, I wonder about that private sector point because I mean, the other thing that's going on is there's a you know a, a tightening in the labour market and actually it's a uh, it's an employers' market in terms of that as well. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on on what happens with wages in the private sector. But Jack, I am old enough to remember. The kind of tail end of the last great inflationary cycle of the 1970s and 1980s, and that came to an end with the 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 led governments of the of the late 1980s, and a key part of that at the time was. Uh, social partnership, which in the in in the years later uh, was 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 a uh, a phrase that fell into disrepute, but clearly played an important part in the economic recovery that followed that period, and it was a kind of a series of quo social partnership, and it did involve a certain moderation in uh, in in pay demands, which was paid for to some extent by uh, other concessions on things like tax and uh, welfare payments.
2: Yeah, and it's funny um. When the uh, process started uh, in a meaningful sense of negotiation between the government and uh, the unions, um, there was this kind of overture from the union side that we reported at the time to kind of almost formalize or, you know, pull together a kind of quasi-formal structure uh, for discussing uh the the social wage, this idea that the Cormac grade made reference to, which is I suppose the, the 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 totality of payments, whether they be directly under the auspices of a public sector pay agreement, or you know other, under the auspices of you know social transfers from uh from the state to families, and that was kind of discussed, as I understand it, at the time the Taoiseach was a big fan of this, and uh you know it it got less purchase in other areas. Of government, and ultimately, it was never really kind of formalized or put onto onto a kind of proper footing. And and what you have at the moment is this kind of it's almost like a shadow system of social partnership, where you have this whole alphabet soup of different organisations involved in this process of negotiating uh, industrial peace and 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 the the kind of wage setting relationship between the state and 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 workers so you have like the national economic and social council the national competitiveness and productivity council we have once a year the national economic dialogue they have the labor economic or the labor employer economic forum um, which again is is a very much diluted form of of social partnership so you know i wonder whether at some point anyone is going to have the kind of political appetite or or you know courage advocates of this step would say to, to kind of confront this and say, no, we need to put this back on a formal footing. Because obviously, as you say, anything resembling social partnership or anything that could be called something approaching social, social partnership would be tainted very much with the, the kind of carving up of the economic goods and the pump priming of the economy uh, that was required to produce those economic goods at the tail end of, of the Celtic tiger. It's it, it still got that toxicity Attached to it, but again, one of the interesting things that, that when I was reporting on this in the in the early part of the summer, late part of the spring, is that there was big support for this from from IBEG, from uh, Danny McCoy, uh, the head of the the IBEG, the employers' organization, who was saying, "Look, at some point, we do need we do need to formalise this. Other jurisdictions have this, um, but you know, it maybe it maybe." more preferable politically, more palatable politically to, to keep on going and, and pretending that we don't have something like this taking on in the background because just the the optics of of saying, let's bring back social partnership, are, they're probably never going to be good.
1: And I just do wonder, Cormac, if the kind of alphabet soup of sectoral interests, which which Jack describes there, is effectively, you know, agreeing the way ahead, what's the best way forward for the nation, when the part of that, that's the trade unions, brings that back to nurses and teachers and says this is the deal we've done for you I think there's a very good chance that that might be rejected
3: I, I, I just don't know I mean it, it what's, what what more do they think they're going to get if they decide to take industrial action you know it, it's a uh, I think I think people outside the public sector would would, would view this as, as quite a, a generous uh, offer on the part of the government to you know?
1: No, I'm sure they would, and I'm not disagreeing with that. But you read about how it's impossible to live on it on a teacher's salary in Dublin, and you read about the working conditions of frontline people in the health
2: service, and they're pretty pissed off. Yeah, but is is any is any sorry to cut in, but like is any public sector pay agreement going to be sufficient to counteract all those pressures? You know, at- probably not
3: it's not just pay pressures and i mean if it, it, you mentioned health it's often uh, staffing and staffing levels and retention of staff you know is is creating pressures there you know that it, perhaps more funding towards the the uh, the the numbers of staff the numbers of teachers the number of nurses would be better better spent on easing those sort of pressures than than uh, simply increasing the salaries of of over, overworked people you know and and that's actually one area where where this pay deal Creates some pressure. I mean, it's going to be one point six billion the overall cost over three years, and a, and a huge portion of that one point four billion is to come out of out of the the money for for budget twenty twenty three. Now there's there's five point seven billion for expenditure measures in the budget. Uh, there is uh, three billion of that is already spent effectively through through you know increases in in providing services due to demographics and existing public pay deals. So so about half of the the money for expenditure is being taken up in this new public pay deal leaving less room for for more hospital beds more guard more more nurses and things like the as jack mentioned earlier the the uh, the plan to uh, increase support to parents for, for who are availing of childcare you know all of these things have to have to come out of about 1.3 billion of the remaining uh, available money so you know it, I think, I think there would be a very strong resistance to further uh, increases in pay for public sector workers, Uh, particularly as I say, you know, it might be popular in the public sector, but outside of it, people see it as a, as a very secure and stable job uh, with, with guaranteed pay increases over, over periods of time that they, they could only dream of when they're working in the private sector. It, It would be politically very difficult to, to give that kind of support to, to one Quite small sector of the of the overall uh, of of overall society when 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 it comes to it.
1: And I've seen that point made forcefully by some contributors to the opinion pages of the Irish Times, who you know, who deprecate Jack this, this idea that there's always enough money there for everybody, but we don't need to uh, need to raise it. But and on this one i am you might say uh, asking a question which is outside my pay grade and perhaps yours as well because i am not an expert on fiscal policy but in a situation where tax receipts are booming now that's partly driven as 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 many people point out and we should point out too by corporate receipts from a very small number of um, of multinationals and foreign direct investment which we should be nervous about in the in in the medium to long term but you know tax revenues are increasing, you know, across the board as well and people's wages are wages are rising. So the, you know, the the landscape is more complicated than just if we spend x amount of money that has y consequence in 2 years time.
2: Yeah, and look the the budgetary sands always shift um and but I think in in the in the short term um you can be fairly confident that you know the the projections drawn up on budget day will um by the services that the government is trying to trying to acquire, uh, whether they be in the short term uh one-off measures or 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 more medium term. Um, you know, the once you try and project beyond that and you know, you get into into very uncertain territory because things are so uh complex and dynamic and, and in a state of flux at the moment. But like just to bring it back to the the public pay deal, um, you know, the 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 proposition that is effectively being being offered you know, is is the opposite of of that kind of degree of complexity and uncertainty, um, because it, it, it crystallizes the choice for public sector work very very firmly to you know, here's what you're getting in the budget. Do you want another seven, eight, hundred or nine hundred quid before Christmas, and do you want a, a, a pay rise next year? And if you vote yes to this, you get all those things, and that's a fairly simple question at the end of the day, notwithstanding the great uncertainties that we all live with these days, day to day.
1: Carmic can I just ask you just more broadly the people who you talk to in uh, in the political parties uh, and uh, and in government how nervous are they about the winter ahead because you you do see as i as i mentioned at the outset these very very bleak analyses that this is going to be You know, something terrible might happen. You know, I mean, God knows what happens in Ukraine and God knows what Vladimir Putin does. But you could have unprecedented situations that we've seen, certainly not since the 1970s. You know, power cuts, queues at petrol stations, you know, short-term working, all those types of things. Is there a fear of that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that is the the overriding fear is the energy situation. Uh, you know, t- talking about politically popular or unpopular things. Politically unpopular is is power cuts at the at the height of winter when you're trying to heat your home and uh, cook your dinner in the evening. That is something that the government absolutely want to avoid at all costs. We had a little taste of it last year, where there was concerns that there would be energy brownouts or blackouts uh, due to some power plants being brought off, off, offline or being, being repaired. You know, that was resolved last year. It didn't happen. There wasn't that sort of thing. But then what happened in the intervening period was, of course, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which uh, sent the energy market into, into chaos and resulted in all of these rising prices. And coupled with that then is is, is Ireland's already tight uh, capacity for power generation. So that, I, I think, you know, if uh, th- the government could be quite happy if they've boxed off the industrial relations side of things, if they have indeed bought, uh, you know, industrial relations piece for the winter, because that's one less thing to worry about. And sure, it's it, the the 1.6 billion is a high price to pay, but the, I, I do will consider that money well spent if, it, if it's successful. What they really have to do now is to turn to the, the energy situation and ensure that we we don't have... Uh, blackouts, uh, you know, in the, in the colder months or or in and around Christmas, because that that is political debt for a government, and uh, we're not we're you know we're halfway through the term. Uh, it's something that won't be forgotten about come the next election if indeed it does happen.
1: Yeah, I'm waiting for the point at which Eamon Ryan gets flamed on Twitter for suggesting we should put on an extra jumper <laughs> and turn our thermostat down down two degrees. That seems inevitable at some point. Jack, you have another story um, this week in the Irish Times, which is very interesting. It's the um, you got access to the report from the Commission on Tax and Welfare, and they have some uh, politically interesting recommendations.
2: Yes, so um, we've seen bits and pieces of this report uh, make their way into the public domain. Our colleague Gumbur Kennedy has been reporting on some of the measures that are advised, particularly around property and, and motoring. But as I understand it, the one of the most meaningful recommendations in the report, or as 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 one person described it would be a a huge shift in the tax system, which is the recommendation that the overall yield from wealth and capital taxes, including property, land, capital acquisitions and capital gains taxes, should increase materially as a portion of overall tax revenues. Now, as I understand it, the uh, total amount of the tax pie that is uh, taken from these uh, taxes on wealth—let's not call them a wealth tax—they're taxes on wealth—and and perhaps more on that later—is in the region of kind of ten percent or less than ten percent, and there is a big push in terms of the people who do kind of long-term planning uh, for the sustainability s- sustainability of the tax system and also, I suppose, to a certain extent, political sustainability um, towards taxing forms of wealth as opposed to forms of income. So we know that the income tax system in Ireland is pretty good at, at redistributing income and ironing out some of the inbuilt kind of inequalities that are inherent in, in the Irish industrial model. What it's less good at is uh, taking you know more um, ossified forms of of, of wealth uh, like property and taxing them effectively and and those are the kind of um, those are the kind of intergenerational often divides that uh, can accentuate uh, political division uh, the most obvious of which is is the the fact that there's this kind of insider outsider dynamic at the moment not only within Irish politics but more broadly certainly within politics in the Anglosphere and um, which is seen by the by, reference to you know uh, richer, older people, property owning classes being comfortable in a way that younger aspirant people who would usually expect to progress to becoming homeowners and all the rest of it uh, are are not. So what the what the report effectively does is is, is look at ways to to remediate that. Yeah, what it stops short of doing is going down the road that that Sinn Fein and others have suggested, which is an across the board uh, wealth tax, a new tax. Uh, which will be levied on net household uh, worth. And what it instead advises is to build out uh, this approach of taxing more or raising more of that overall pie from uh, wealth as opposed to income uh, using existing taxes. So what are we talking about when it comes to existing taxes? Some form of of land or property tax, whether that's the local property tax, uh, an alter version of that a site value tax or some other equivalent uh capital taxes as well so you'd be talking about capital gains taxes when you know the, the kind of windfall gains that people get when they sell a business perhaps increasing uh, increasing those taxes and also capital acquisitions tax that people pay on inheritances and inheritance is seen by you know those in who who uh, advocate for for wealth taxes and those involved in equality studies and so on inheritance is seen as one of those points where you know the the um, the transfer of wealth between generations is is, is solidified uh, within family groups as opposed to redistributed around, around society. Um, and it is seen, I suppose, as one of the more pernicious forms of, of wealth preservation down a bloodline as opposed to, you know, more broadly um, within uh, different groups across society. So if, this, if the, th- this is only a recommendation within a report that hasn't been considered by government, that hasn't been published yet, so, you know, we're, as always in the Irish Times, at the leading edge of these things, but um, if the government, uh, when it comes to consider this, which is in all likelihood going to be after the budget, so we shouldn't expect any action on this in this budget but when it comes to, this, to consider this and when it comes to make those kind of big strategic choices and decisions about the future if it were to take this advice um and and run with it i think it would be a fairly profound reorientation of the way that we uh that that we tax are the way that we generate um, tax uh, on individuals in in the state, and and a shift away, as we say, from income to to wealth, and you know it, it is one of those big strategic things that the government has to has to get right over the next little while. You know, this, this is this a government that has been. Firefighting from day one with COVID, and and then when COVID dropped off, the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis came in. The previous government had Brexit, you know. So, but there's all these kind of huge demographic challenges coming down the way. Whether it is the structure of the tax and welfare system, or you know what to do with pensions, uh, or you know how to how to uh, uh, sustainably reform the electricity market, whatever it is. Um, Nobody has really made meaningful progress on these things, and I think one of the legacies, hopefully, of this government is that it that it does get to grips with these things and it makes some of those hard political choices. But of course, uh, there can be very there 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 can be winners and losers in these things, and and often the the costs uh, materialise more uh, tangibly. Uh, for for the losers who will resist it in this case, you know that that insider group who um, usually vote uh, are usually motivated to take part in, in political discourse and and usually vote for for mainstream parties. So you would imagine, particularly when it comes to an issue like capital acquisitions tax, inheritance tax. I mean, you know, doing something like that would be fairly anathema to, to um, Finnegall voters in particular. So um, it's not a given that this will be be taken up and run with by the government by any uh, by any stretch. But it is nonetheless fascinating that. This ball has been put into play by the commission on tax matter.
1: Well, indeed, it, it is uh, Cormac, and there are a couple of things that strike me about it. What you know, one is you know there are two key arguments for this kind of shift in taxation. One was made by the troika um, when they were uh, running things in this town for for a couple of years, which is that it's a good way to establish a more. A greater confidence in the long term on future tax revenues. If you if you raise more of your taxes from from this, you have a more solid tax base essentially. And the other one is what Jack refers to, which is a, a lot of people who want to increase the level of or decrease the level of inequality of Irish society, see this as a key way of doing it. So having said all that, I'm going to be cynical here and I'm going to say this is going to be added to the long list of um, well-thought-out, interesting reports which are gathering shelves as we speak in the archives of of, of many governments because, I mean, the two key elements which he described there, um, a revised upwards form of tax in, on property, no matter what form that may take, be it site tax or whatever it might be, um, and an increased level of tax on inheritance, uh, Irish political parties, not just Fine Gael, will run a mile from that.
3: Yeah, I mean perhaps the the most politically the most useful this report's most useful to Sinn Fein because it it kind of bolsters their their arguments for a general increase in taxes on wealth and and um, perhaps if it, it, if it ends up on a shelf, it might be dusted off by a future Sinn Fein finance minister in a in a future government. Uh, but you're right. I mean it's. There's there's no great incentive for for this to be implemented anytime soon. Look at the the property tax situation. I mean, it's not that long since we had an overhaul of local property tax. So sure, they haven't specified that this would be the way of, of uh, you know, increasing taxes on property. But but you know, are are the government really going to bring in a site valuation tax? Having just just looked at local property tax within the last two years, I think that's probably unlikely. It's also a lot of these kinds of taxes are seen as kind of. You know, uh, anti-business. Uh, you know, or anti-people in middle and and higher incomes, which you know doesn't appeal to the to uh You know, policies certainly, and and Finnegail, as well, and and again the inheritance stuff. You could look at. Um, uh, issues like uh, farmers and inheriting land and things like that so it, it there there would be issues in the in rural ireland about it as well so there there's not much in it for the government to to make drastic changes in the next while it is it, as jack was saying it's not imminent we w- wouldn't expect to see this stuff in the budget and you know they can put it on the long finger after that, if if they so choose. But you never know; they might adopt a policy here or there that that's maybe you know fairly simple to get over the line and and uh, would 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 be a, a, an easy way to say, look, we are we are doing more to to tax wealth um, you know, in the in the last couple of years of the government.
2: Uh, just very briefly, like everything the Cormac has said is true, and you know, it is it is easier not to do something uh, when it comes to these big long term questions. But against that, I suppose has to be balanced that you know, as I alluded to uh, when we started talking about this, that like you know, fault lines exist within you know modern democratic politics, and um, they exist perhaps, or they they have come to be visible less quickly in Irish politics than in U.S. or uh, British politics. But nonetheless, nonetheless, one of the dividing lines and one of the fault lines within Irish politics is you know this insider outsider dynamic, this sense that young people. Cannot aspire to a life that is as good or better than that of their parents, and political leadership, I would argue, uh, is about confronting that and adopting policies that may have a short-term cost associated with them, but in the long term, uh, can help you know remedy that. And I suppose one of the kind of more broadly fundamental questions is whether you know the mainstream, uh, or, or and whether the 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 population and whether voters believe that the mainstream political parties will and can do this, or whether they have to turn to, I suppose, what might be broadly constructed as insurgent political parties or movements, um, uh, most obviously seen here in Sinn Féin, in order to deliver that. Uh, I think that that there is a movement and there is a pressure to do these kind of things, and the question is not um, whether or should governments do them, it's, it's more who will do them.
1: Cormac, before we go, you had an item of news just popped up on your screen there.
3: Sure yeah we we've we've just learned that uh, Derek Kelly has been appointed as new minister of state in the department of enterprise by by the Taoiseach. Um, your listeners will know that uh, there has been a great deal of controversy over his predecessor in the role Robert Troy and his his failure to fully disclose uh, property interests over over a number of years uh, to the Dahl register of interests um so he he resigned last week, apologizing for the mistakes he's made uh, albeit saying that his 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 biggest mistake was a failure of due diligence uh so the the t-shirt obviously took the weekend to consider uh who would be appointed in his place but uh mrcle mayo TD, he was widely tipped to get the job he he previously resigned as Minister for Agriculture very early on in this government as he had attended the the infamous Golfgate dinner in uh, Clifton, County Galway that happened at a time of, of tightening COVID restrictions. Now, we know that the organisers of the, the event uh, have have been cleared of any wrongdoing in terms of breaching COVID restrictions. But, but uh, Derek Cleary at the time very very clear, very clear quickly saw that the writing was on the wall in terms of the public opinion of, of whether or not that event should have happened in the way that it did. And he fell on his sword at the time. Uh, since then, the Taoiseach has been generous in his remarks about Derek Cleary, saying that there was always a, a way back uh, for him for, to cabinet now, he ha- isn't quite returning to cabinet just yet. A junior minister uh, generally don't get to sit a cabinet, but but he's 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 back with a, a portfolio, uh, a similar one to one he held before uh, back in the the, the the last Green Party Fianna Fail coalition in, in the in the later uh,
1: Is there some sense, maybe particularly in Fianna Fail, of a of a wrong being righted here?
3: I think so. I mean, there's a great deal of sympathy for, for Mr. Cleary in the party. He he's he's quite a popular figure. Um, it would have been seen as 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 a major snub, I think, of 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 Derek Cleary if he hadn't been appointed today. Now, there will, I'm sure, be some backbenchers licking their wounds who might have been hopeful that they would they would get the nod this time around. But but you know, they might they might have another chance in another couple of months when uh, when a, a wider reshuffle may well take place when the, the roles of Taoiseach switch between Fianna Fáil and Gael.
2: It does, slightly lessen the, it does slightly lessen the pressure for um, a wider reshuffle in some ways. If you take it as read that like one of the big things that um, Miel Martin was going to have to respond to was a, a pressure to put Kaliri back in, and, and that kind of movement did exist in some way, shape or form um, within Fianna Fáil. So the fact that he has been upped, albeit not to a cabinet position, maybe makes it less of an imperative that he actually needs to drop someone to make room for Caleri. Uh You know, this is just one of the many different inputs that people will be parsing over the next, uh, however many months it is, four months before we get the, the reshuffle.
1: Indeed, and we'll definitely be doing all that in this place as well over the next few weeks. But that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thanks to, to Jack and to Cormac for joining us. We'll be back very soon, but until the next time, thanks for listening.